1: The Science of Sports Podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports Journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode... Don't drink more, even of a sports drink, to try and compensate for salty sweat. Junk miles happen when you go a little bit too hard, not too easy. Deliberately stop blood flow to a limb and then do weight training on that limb. Is there any evidence right. that it works? So there, there actually is.
2: Fatigue is the key, not weight. So welcome to our second episode of our 2021 season, our season number three of the Real Science of Sport podcast. And as usual, I'm here with uh, Professor Ross Tafka. My name is Mike Finch, and I've been a sports gymnast for as long as I can possibly remember. And Ross now is now, and officially, as of last Monday, in the experienced age group, he's now turned 40. He's no longer an under 40 year old, but still riding like an absolute machine. And uh, I said to Ross uh, when we were riding on Monday that um, just because he's a bit older, he's probably a little bit wiser, if it's possible to be, to be wiser than you, Ross. But you're a little bit wiser, and uh, that can only be a good thing for our podcast. So I'll take full advantage of that. I thought so when it, you
1: were teeing it up there, you said you've been a sports journalist for as long as Ross has been Ross alive. Ross has been alive. You were thinking uh, that, and then not you far, not then far you off out of it. It.
2: There's 10 years difference between you and I. I'm 50, you're 40. And I started working as a sports journalist when I was 18 years of our age. So eight years, give or take, I'm almost, almost being almost as long as you've been alive. I've been a sports journalist, not quite, but uh, anyway. Um, so what we decided to do in this podcast, I'm sure that a few of you that have been on our Patreon site, if you want to go and support us on Patreon, you can have a look up on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot and look at Science Support. Sport, um, you can get on there and uh, become one of our supporters. And there's all sorts of different uh, price brackets you can come into. You can be uh, And a well, I mean, Ross, you know, there's really, really what it's legends are the top guys, there's Olympic hopefuls. What are the the different divisions that we've got there?
1: Olympic legends are the top tier, uh, and then followed by Olympic champions, and then Olympic athletes. There we go. So you get you go on there and you choose. And for those who don't know, it's just essentially a pledge of a donation, a monthly amount that you then give us out of the kindness of your hearts and ears, (laughs) for listening to us waffle about sport once or twice a month. And obviously we really appreciate it. And then as you were leading into, we will occasionally, like this week, ask you to ask us questions and drive the content.
2: And That's exactly what we did. And a big thank you to all of our Patreon um, uh, members because we've got quite a lot of, few, uh, quite a lot of questions. We weren't able to get to them all. We have had to kind of pick out the best ones that we can say I mean, the best ones is tricky because there were really lots of good ones. But we picked out a few for this edition and then potentially in a couple of, well, maybe even next month sometime, we'll do the second half of those Patreon questions. So we um, will do all of them. We will do all of them eventually. Yeah. Um, but a big thank you to all of our Patreon members that sent us those questions. And hopefully we will get a chance to answer some of them today in a way that is satisfactory. We will... a bit of a disclaimer on this though because to some extent some of these questions that have been asked of us today probably require more than just a a passing discussion they are quite intricate and uh, we will talk about some of those subjects a bit later on but we will be able to give you some element of an answer and certainly what it's done is it's given us an opportunity to think about future episodes of the pod and things that we can focus on down the line so thank you for the ideas and uh, we really do appreciate um those contributions from our patreon members um, I will also have one disclaimer today because I'm older than you Ross I've left my glasses behind at home so I might struggle to read some of the questions but I've made it very big type on my computer at the moment so I should be able to read them but if I, if I sound like I'm struggling with some of the questions <laughs> I might have to just apologize for that because it's literally because my aging eyes don't see as well as they used to when I was 40. But uh, let's start off uh, first of all. I mean, tell us about this week of yours, being forty years old. I mean, when we were riding, we had a bit of a celebratory ride on on, uh, on Tuesday night, and uh, here in South Africa, and for those of you that live that live in South Africa, we know we can't we can't go out and have a drink at any of the bars, and we can't buy booze. But we decided what we'll do is we'll go for a ride and celebrate it that way. But does it does it change that day? Being, I mean, it's just a number and a day. But when you went from 39 to 40. I didn't battle with it, but you said that you struggled a bit with it. <laughs> I didn't need a specific
1: day to make me appreciate that I'm getting older, because every time I do a long ride, I wake up the next morning and I feel like an arthritic old man already. And that was when I was 37. So um, so it didn't what What is odd about it is that you think you look back. I don't know whether you did this, but when my dad was 40, I was in primary school, almost high school. Yeah. And then I look at my situation compared to his then, the equivalent. And I think, wow, yeah. am I in the right place? Am I on the right track? So then you have these <laughs> moments of reflection, which are compounded by moments of aches and pains and mm. start thinking, actually, the clock is ticking on me here. <laughs> so anyway, it was semi-depressing in that way, reflectively. Oh, we, had, we had a good time. We did. And yeah, yeah I mean, okay. it's, yeah. I'm not going to complain about getting older because i'm still healthy and fit yep. and able to do stuff like that so there's no point being exactly. sour about it and say i can't do it as if i was a 24 year old but the thing about getting older that i do think is important to accept is that you you'll probably never be as good as you were really unless you unless you start something I would new with that unless you start something new but when we go on our rides and and even when I was running, not' just been cycling for the last year, but before that, making comparisons to twenty four year old self is actually not a good idea, so you have to start getting out of the habits of doing that, yeah, so if you can do that and then your expectations change, then you can age with style, yeah. <laughs> But you have to realize that if your marker for how you're going is your best ever time, that's actually just asking yourself to lose. And we we spoke last week about the number one thing for people who are starting out is you have to rig it to win it, remember? Yeah. With respect Finish to... Finish fast. Yeah, and, and set mm. goals that are achievable. Mm. With aging, rigging it to winning it means don't make comparisons to when you were at your peak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: I, I think when I think about... Performance uh, based on the fact that I run in our cycle is that as you get older you you're able to do Some of the things that you do you actually do better I think that I have more endurance and I think sometimes I have more strength It takes me a little bit longer to warm up, but once I warm up I can definitely go I think longer and harder and when I was younger I had maybe more speed, but I, I almost look forward to seeing being some of the people that I've seen riding in their 60s and 70s who are doing extraordinary things on a bicycle let alone runners and um, you know here in south africa we have the cape town cycle tour breaking a three hours for the cape town cycle tour is like one percent of that ride and i know there are 70 year olds who are like riding 302 301 for that and and you know that they're, they're if you go riding with, with them on a, on a weekend on a, on a sunday they'll absolutely kill you so mm. there's a part of me that gets inspired by the fact that we have this perception in our head that as we get older we we're radically slowing down but i think we can offset that by training smarter by being smarter and differently and differently exactly. different activities yeah. too absolutely and we did a podcast on aging in
1: season 1 or 2 i can't even remember when we did it yeah that also comes with me. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but we did a, stuff. we did a podcast on aging and we said there that as you get older you have to char- start to pick maybe different activities different ways to spend your time and, and mm-hmm. cycling lends itself to getting older with less decline than running does yeah with a few very rare exceptions and then you have to start just supplementing i know you've started doing that is it going for a run once a week so have mm-hmm. i because i realized that on the bike i was really learning one movement pattern without yeah. impact and i was getting less athletic as a consequence of becoming more cycling fit yeah and that's actually not due to age that's just due to training specificity yeah and so anyway you learn these things but this is this is the wisdom that you exactly. promised i would
2: acquire yes <laughs> So i look forward to it you've only been in 40 for a couple of days and you've already got more wisdom look at that why is it going to
1: be when you're 50 i'm just paraphrasing what you just said so.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: anyway so uh, those of you who are getting a bit older be inspired by the fact that i think that, that there's lots of things that we can gain from being older and certainly i don't think it necessarily means that you're enjoyment of whatever activity you take part in needs to get any less right so let's get to our questions from our patreon members and our first question comes from a gentleman by the name of Finn who said you have talked about hydration previously and it was really interesting my question is that relates to me I know it's selfish he says I feel like I'm a very salty sweater I come home I I come from Scotland so it isn't that one would consider a hot climate when I go to a training camp I'm a track cyclist at Lanzarote my preferred destination for warm weather camps it seems like the amount of salt that lines my face kit in comparison to athletes is significantly more and he goes into sort of describe some of those sort of salty sweating conditions that he has but maybe we can talk a little bit about like why does why do we get that salty stuff on our back when we go on long rides or or Mm. even long runs well so Finn Finn basically asks then he says he's a
1: salty sweater yeah and he has three questions effectively is it bad does it affect performance and what do i do about it so in order to answer those three questions we have to understand as you've correctly steered us in is the is the concept of sweat and salt and why it's there in the first place the reason you get those white stains uh, salt stains on the back of the jerseys and, and so on when you exercise is because when sweat evaporates the water leaves and the salt stays behind so that literally is you could wring it out and season your food with it right <laughs> don't, <I> don't. <laughs> um, so we, we sweat to lose heat because the evaporation of sweat from the surface of the skin causes considerable heat loss So on a particularly hot day, when you can't evaporate the sweat, it is ineffective. And that's why humidity is as much a challenge as heat. So when uh, when Finn goes to his training camps, he's got the double whammy of a hotter, more humid environment than he would normally have encountered in Scotland, potentially, depending on the conditions. So some basics about salt in sweat is our, our blood plasma contains sodium at a concentration of approximately 140 millimole per liter. Mm -hmm. In the sweat gland, as the sweat is produced, the sodium content in the sweat is the same as in the plasma, 140. But then what happens is, as the sweat moves from the gland where it is produced through the duct to the surface of the skin, some of that sodium is what's called reabsorbed. So in other words, the body says, hang on, we don't want to lose you. We're going to keep most of you behind. The result is that what eventually leaves via the sweat duct and is part of the sweat is what's called hypo, so low Mm -hmm. tonic relative to the plasma. So in other words, it's got a lower sodium content than the plasma. Does that make sense so far? And so typically, if you measured the sweat content at your forearm or some surface of the skin, it would be in the range of 40 Millimol per liter remember this plasma is 140 primary sweats 140 but by the time it actually reaches the skin it's only 40. Mm-hmm. but naturally there's a spread around that and so some people are down below 20 millimole per liter and other people are upwards of 80 touching on 100. those are the people that you might define as a salty sweater okay. higher than normal salt concentrations but still and this is important never the same as plasma so even the saltiest sweater still has a salt content in their sweat that is lower than that of the plasma, right? Now that's important because theoretically and in concept, you cannot lower your sodium content in your plasma through losing sweat because what is lost is more dilute than what stays behind. So there's osmotic pressure. Uh, it it's right? sort of. it's just not, In this instance, it's just osmotic comparison. Yeah. What's, osmotic pressure is what's driving the fluid exchange between the tissues and between the cells. Mm-hmm. And that's why the plasma sodium content is so important. Because if that, remember the, the, the normal value for sodium plasma content was? 140. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> just checking. I'm listening. Just checking that I still haven't lost you with all these numbers because <laughs> I'm worried I, I give clumsy explanations. So it's 140. If that goes too low and you dilute your plasma and it hits 130 125 120 that becomes a very serious medical condition because you become what's called hypo again low natremic sodium mm-hmm. low sodium and when that happens fluid starts moving from the plasma into the tissues and you get swelling in your brain, and you get fluid in the lungs. And many people have died during exercise as a consequence of that condition.
2: It's also known as water intoxication, which I think is a great way to describe it, isn't it?
1: That is exactly what it is known as. However, that is the key point that is going to get us to an answer to Finn's question. Because Mm -hmm. the question is, does your sodium level in your plasma drop because you added water, or is it because you lost salt? Because you can understand that 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 consequence that hyponatremia could be the result of two things Mm -hmm. you could either be losing the salt or you could be adding water so here's here's, here it is you're in your kitchen you've got a bowl full of salt and water and you've got two options you can either take the salt out and it becomes more diluted Mm -hmm. or you can add water and it becomes more diluted so the key question with respect to understanding fluid balance is which of those is actually happening now way back in 1985 Tim Noakes here in South Africa first identified a case of an athlete with this condition, hyponatremia. By 1991, they had shown, pretty conclusively in my opinion, that that condition was the result of fluid overload or excess and not salt loss. So when you look at a person who comes to a medical tent with a sodium level in the 120s, very sick, they have lost some salt, obviously, because they've been sweating. But the biggest issue is that they've added fluid. And, and that's it's fluid the, that doesn't obviously contain salt, so it's correct. just too much water. And that's water and mm-hmm. sports drinks, because sports drinks do not typically contain sodium levels that are the equivalent of our plasma. So ah. Gatorade, Energy, and so on, they are also hypotonic sports drinks. So it doesn't matter how much salt you consume in a sports drink, you are still adding more fluid relative to salt. Ah, okay. And, and that's why the argument, and if you look, if you look at some of the studies, and there have been dozens of them. Where if you take people and you put them, say, in a lab for two hours and you make them exercise and you give them either water or a sports drink, their sodium levels decline over time because they're getting fluid. Mm -hmm. In these studies, they typically match your sweat loss with fluid, which you don't need to do, (laughs) but that's what they they do by design. So let's say you're sweating a litre an hour, they're telling you to drink a litre an hour. You either drink a litre an hour of water or a litre an hour of uh, sports drink. Yeah. What happens is after two hours, your sodium levels are slightly lower when you drank water than sports drink. Because there's some salt in the sports drink. Right. But you're still lower. So in why don't th- sports drinks just have more sodium in them then? Because it drives thirst. Ah. <laughs> so an actual that's, fact. And that's been shown as well in studies is that if you give people unrestricted access to drinks, they will consume more of the sports drink than of water in large part because of the sodium, because there are receptors in our mouths that also dictate thirst, they trigger thirst mechanisms. And so when you have salt in your diet or salt in your drinks, then you become thirstier. It's the same reason if you drink, eat popcorn, pretzels, I was gonna say, like, it's like the peanuts peanuts a, at the bar with the beer. And, <laughs> and this is key because, yeah. because our body, the, the, the body's regulation of its osmolality is incredibly sensitive because when that level goes, either side of 140 plus or minus five it triggers in us behavior change and hormone changes that retain or get rid of sodium sure it's one of the it's like blood pressure mm-hmm. we have to regulate our blood sodium levels and so when we lose fluid not salt we become hypertonic hyper um, natremic, which is too much sodium, too much sodium we yeah. then get super thirsty we drink water we dilute it back to normal plus our bodies kick in different hormones, ADH and aldosterone in different ratios. If we are losing salt, our bodies release this hormone called aldosterone, which then keeps the salt back. So our sodium levels go. So it's a really finely regulated system. And, and the reason I'm saying all this theoretical stuff is because in answer to Finn's question, salty sweaters do not... There, there, there's no evidence that a salty sweater is more vulnerable to loss of salt to cause this condition, hyponatremia. Mm-hmm. There is evidence that they might get lower sodium levels, but that only becomes a risk factor if they over-consume fluids on top of their salty sweat. So the answer to Finn with respect to fluid is don't drink more, even of a sports drink, to try and compensate for salty sweat because you will actually accelerate the problem. Yeah, <laughs> And there's some good studies that have shown that um, when, when you take and compare people with low sodium and high sodium in their, in their sweat, as long as they drink to thirst, they both end up okay. Right. If you force them to drink too much, the salty sweater might get lower sodium, potentially harmful sodium levels compared to the normal salty sweater. And he talks specifically
2: about taking salt now, uh, tabs to sol- offset it.
1: salt cap tablets might be a little bit different because there's no fluid implication mm. in terms of what you ingest. It does change your fluid balance inside the body because all of a sudden your plasma is going to see an increase in sodium concentration. And what's it going to do? It's going to say, that's not desirable. We're going to get rid of sodium. And so what happens is your body then releases diuretic, antidiuretic hormones to retain water. So mm-hmm. you don't pee as much. Mm-hmm. You'll sweat slightly less of that. Uh, you'll sweat slightly more of that sodium out, sorry. So in other words, your body will produce less aldosterone, which means that, remember your sweat is produced at high concentrations and then as it moves through the duct we, we get some of that salt back yeah if you just take a salt capsule you just get less of that back right. and you'll end up sweating more of that salt out so there are studies on men who've, who've uh, men in, in the army for instance in the military where they'll expose them to heat for like two weeks at a time and they'll change the salt content in their diet and the amount of salt in their urine and the amount of salt in their sweat just goes up Almost exactly in so the proportion body, the to... The body's them. regulating itself. The body is regulating the salt content. So yeah. the, the, the simple answer to, to Finn is being a salty sweater is not bad. You fall within a normal spectrum of, of human sweating salt levels. <laughs> doesn't make any difference to performance. Only if you feel that it starts to affect your thirst levels enough to then start to ch- change your perception. So for instance, there are some studies where they've given people large doses of sodium before they exercise and that helps defend your plasma osmo- uh, uh, volume during exercise and they reckon in those people they don't perceive the heat the same and they don't have quite the same challenges to defend it during exercise. Now if that's if that's in Finn's case he, he talks about he can't remember if it made a difference but he seems to recall like his headaches were much less pronounced when taking salt tablets. Yeah. If that's him, then go for it. Because yeah. the beauty of it being a regulated system is that taking that salt tablet is probably not going to be bad for him, yeah, up to a point. Because I mean, the body will regulate. The body will just pee it out yeah. and sweat it out yeah. more than it would have otherwise. Um, what he should not do is try to over-consume fluid, even salt-containing fluid, to make up for it, because right. then he starts to create the, the actual problem is a fluid overload issue, not a salt loss issue. So. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's fluid basics 101. Um, It's a complex area. A lot of people take salt tablets and swear by them. um, Yeah, without there being a confirmed in large enough studies mechanism for them. But that's an example of where I would say, look, if it's not harming you, and you feel it's beneficial, then why would you change it based on some theory (laughs) that it can't be proven? I wouldn't.
2: How would you know if you were doing taking too many salt tabs or salt well, caps? Well, because
1: because the consequence would be that your plasma osmolality would go way up. Yeah, you'd be thirsty all the time. Yeah. Your blood pressure would start to become. So an actual fact. That's why I say up to a point because yeah. there would there would come a point where actually too much salt in the diet is bad. So imagine you start taking five salt tablets a day, and you're now consuming twenty grams of salt a day. Obviously, that's not healthy. Yeah. So for Finn in in his situation, it might be. Before particularly long exposures, long training sessions, try, try it and see. And if you believe that it's working, then go for it. But otherwise, there's really no evidence that you can cheat what is a finely regulated, finely tuned system. You can, however, do
2: serious damage to it if you overdo the fluid intake. There's a great, um, I don't know whether you, uh, especially the youngsters who are listening to this podcast will know this, but there's a great uh, character uh, done by Sasha Baron Cohen called Ali G. And there's a great interview that he does with a guy who's a drug expert. And he says to the guy, now, what he's obviously mocking him about what drugs you should take. And the, the, the guy who's the, um, uh, the drug expert sort of says, you know, you have a finely tuned, beautiful body. And he goes, oh, thank you very much. And I always remember that because when we talk about the situation, we understand like, our bodies, the human body, has an amazing capacity for lots of things beyond just this. And you know, the fact that it can regulate itself, and, and listening to it, mm. and also understanding your own body, how you perform when you drink certain fluids, you start to understand how your own body works, and you become sensitive and more aware of it. Yeah, because it mm. is an amazingly regulatory system in, yeah. in many different ways.
1: Yeah, and and, and sodium balance, osmolality, yeah. is one of the most impressive systems because it yeah. is. It triggers thirst so quickly. If, if that sodium goes one millimolar too high or too low, it changes our thirst thresholds. Yeah, incredible. So, so one handful of popcorn, popcorn will make you relatively thirstier. Yeah. It will trigger the release of vasopressin to retain a little bit of water. On the other hand, drinking half a liter of water will do the opposite. We'll, we'll then say, okay, we've diluted a little bit. Yeah. More aldosterone means more sodium retention and less vasopressin means less water retention oh i need to go to the bathroom now it really is an amazingly sensitive system that then also changes behavior and so
2: the, the key is does it change performance do we know if any of those hormones coming into the system based on sodium levels change performance no the the
1: performance implication happens when the disturbance or the change to homeostasis is large enough for it to affect your perception of effort. So okay. if you are ingesting so much salt and in insufficient water and you don't have access to water, your thirst sensation will start to negatively affect performance. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's happening at a, at, a, at a salt concentration in the mid 140s. Mm-hmm. As long as you've got access to fluid, your behavior will correct that situation and you won't see a detrimental effect on performance. But again, we've been in the medical tent at Ironmans, ultramarathon, cycling events, mm. and the fastest athletes finish having lost considerable weight. So they lose between 2 and 5% of their body mass. So That's a guy true. who starts at 70 will finish at 65, 66, 67 kilos wow. because they sweat for 4 hours, yeah. one liter an hour, and they only replace one liter of that. Mm. So they lost three liters of fluid. The best predictor of your body's sodium content on the finish line is your weight loss. But your body's not regulating weight, it's regulating sodium. So that's the key. And, and so most people who finish endurance exercise have high sodium levels mm-hmm. in their plasma because they have drunk to thirst and the body's allowed their sodium levels to trend up because when you finish, you'll, you'll replace it. We're delayed drinkers yes. in effect. So, high sodium levels at the end of an extended bout of exercise is a normal thing. Provided they're not too high. Yeah. I, I do. I remember being in the medical tent at the Comrades, which again is a 90K foot race here in South Africa annually. And most of the people in there had high sodium content, plasma and sodium. Mm-hmm. None of them felt like drinking anything because I think 10, 11, 12 hours of running yep. had made them nauseous and maybe too many sweet cokes and gels and stuff on the course. They can't tolerate fluid in those instances i do wonder whether the high sodium is potentially affecting their biochemistry enough that they can't actually tolerate their nauseous and sick because of it Mm. those people tend to respond really well to a intravenous infusion of saline which then brings their sodium levels down and off they go but i think they'd be fine anyway they might just be uncomfortable yeah but but back to finn's question who hopefully has had an answer now is you don't need to worry if you're a saltier sweater than your than your mates um you need to still drink to thirst and consume salt to thirst but you can consider in small doses incrementally explore the possibility that a salt capsule or tablet might change your perception by altering your plasma volume because see this has this has implications for blood pressure as well where is your plasma sitting in which compartment in which tissues And, Mm -hmm. and how much of it is there and so forth so that's where the salt might start to make a little bit of a difference, but there's certainly no reason to panic and say, oh, "I'm losing so much salt, I, I'm, I'm in trouble here."
2: Your body will, your body will figure out a way to keep it the way it needs to be. Yeah, it's almost like a badge of honor. I always think when you see people have done long races and you see the the salts on the <laughs> on the back of a a cyclist's jersey, you see those in the Tour de France when they mm. have photographers taking pictures, and that kind of when you see that salt, it's almost like there's the perception of a higher level of effort. <laughs> because the, the, the jersey is very sweaty and yeah. and and when we see that even in top level tour de france riders you realize that sweating salt is a fairly normal consequence of extended exercise yeah exactly yeah it's
1: yeah. it's actually and this is where the fluid manufacturing the beverage companies change the message because it should have been seen as a sign that everything's working yeah but way that, <laughs> the way that it was positioned was a sign that there was some failure which you needed to then correct with a sports drink, which ironically enough would only accelerate that problem because yeah. the addition of a sports drink is, not, is actually going to worsen your health prognosis or outcome. So yeah. anyway, it was, yeah, the message always was the body knows best and just listen because it'll yeah. tell you what it needs. You have a beautiful body,
2: Sally G, exactly. <laughs> so thanks very much for that question, Finn. And I must say, I, I was—I thought that would be quite a simple question to answer. But yeah, I've, I have learned a lot about that. That's uh, very, very fascinating. So the next question we've got is from Adrian Friedman. He says, hi, Ross and Mike. I hope I'm not too late. No, you aren't. Here is my question. It has become fashionable to focus on the 80-20 rule for endurance athletes. Some go even further, Maffetone, Phil Maffetone, I'll give you some uh, context to that, also one of my sort of uh, coaching cycling heroes. For example, he prescribes a heart rate based formula of 180 minus your age, which would require me to train at 138 beats per minute in all cases, which I cannot contemplate, which I'm assuming means that when you're Keeping it that low, you wouldn't be able to walk or even ride a medium-sized hill. Often then these approaches are proposed, it is implied that spending most of one's time in an easy zone is ideal for mitochondrial development, fat adaption, etc. Et in other words, the implication is that ideal training adaption comes from zone 2 work um, combined depending on the program with a small dose of intensity, but is this true? I pay no attention to heart rate or even perceived rates of exertion. I train a high volume, 10 to 14 hours a week, that is high, made up of running and some biking and an indoor trainer. When I run, I just go outside into the hilly streets of Johannesburg and clock miles without worrying about heart rate. When I ride, I normally choose a program on the trainer road with moderate high intensity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, basically the question that Adrian's asking is, this principle of 80-20, now, Phil Maffetone, and this is, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, was the kind of the father of heart rate based training, he was the coach of um, Mark Allen, who was I think a five or six time winner of the Ironman in Hawaii, and Mark Allen kind of put him on the map because Mark Allen was always finishing third, fourth and fifth. Um, He went to Phil Maffetone, Phil Maffetone said to him, do the 180 minus your age. And if you're 180 minus your age, means you're always aerobic. You're never anaerobic. You can be guaranteed of that, even though everybody's got a varying levels of aerobic anaerobic threshold. What happened as a result of that is that Mark Allen then went from somebody who was finishing third, fourth, fifth to winning and winning consistently after marathon. So then it became fashionable to really train aerobically. What is the modern thinking? Mm-hmm. And, and where are we with this? Because there is so much discussion in this space. Yeah, so the 80-20 that Adrian refers to
1: is kind of the modern thinking. You can find on YouTube, you'll find clips of uh, Steven Seiler, who's a very well-known exercise yeah, physiologist and extremely practical guy. Like Everything he does is, is almost asks the, from the perspective of what's the athlete doing and can I explain it, as yeah. opposed to what does my lab knowledge tell me and now I'm going to dictate to the world. <laughs> so he's very good like that, and he gives a YouTube talk. You've seen it, I know, uh, where he talks about this concept of training at the poles, polarized training, I think he calls it. Is that have that right? Yeah,
2: polarized training, yeah.
1: Um, There's no middle, it's either hard or easy. Yeah, and most of your volume is made up of easy. Now that's not, it's partly because many of the endurance benefits occur in that easier training intensity zone. But it's also a practical reason because you cannot sustain high volumes of training in the high intensity zones because that's where you'll be out there cycling at 300 watts or running at 345 a k which means that the load on the joints, the impact forces, the metabolic demand, the hormone demand, the, sy- the nervous system stress is large enough that if we do that for a couple of months, we start to fall off the cliff eventually, go downhill. Yep. So there's practical reasons and theoretical reasons for it. So in order to try and understand this, again, we always try and go back to first concepts, first principles and concepts here. That way you're, you're equipped, it's like teaching you to fish, not giving you a fish so we we have to ask the question right well when you're training to become an endurance athlete what are you trying to change inside your body so in our very first season we discussed the science of perfect training and i Mm. think many of these concepts came up there so you might go back and look at that 2019 it was sometime during that year season (laughs) (laughs) one one. yeah Yeah. Uh, and we basically said that as an endurance athlete you're going to go out with certain aspirations whether it's a three-hour marathon or a four-hour or this four-hour cycle to a time, whatever it is in South Africa. And there are five or six things that are going to stop you. Your cardiovascular system hasn't achieved the necessary capacity to supply blood and therefore oxygen to the muscles. It can't remove the metabolic byproducts of muscle contraction and get fuel to the muscles. There are metabolic constraints. I don't have in my muscles the enzymes that are necessary to turn glucose, and fat into energy for my muscles to contract. There's a thermoregulatory constraint, there's a mechanical, or let's call it neuroskeletal, musculoskeletal constraint, and then there's a nervous system issue. So broadly speaking, those are the systems that training is trying to shift mm. in a direction that will allow you to go a little bit faster, a little bit longer, or a combination of both. Makes yep. sense. Yep. So when we, th- when we talk about, for instance, the, the first batch there, the cardiovascular, we get those cardiovascular benefits at lower exercise intensities so the increased blood volume increased capillaries that are available to carry blood and fuel to the muscles the and adrian quite correctly alludes to this he talks about the um mitochondrial mitochondrial development
2: fat adaptation just give us a a quick pricey about mitochondria what do they do (laughs) and why is it important for endurance (laughs) mitochondria always make me laugh because (laughs) They are funny guys.
1: Anyone who's ever been in school biology will know mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell. I reckon that line is written in every textbook in the world on biology ever. That's how they're always referred to. Because the mitochondria is a little factory that sits inside your cell. So if your cell is the neighborhood, the mitochondria is the factory on the corner. And its job is to pump out the ATP. I love that description. So ATP is, we've had this one a few times. So Something here's your, ad, 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 adenos- aden- adenosine. Adenosine.
2: Okay, finish it
1: for me. Try. Phosphate. Phosphate. That's correct. it. So that's, that's, a, that's an energy, that's an energy substrate for your muscle. So for your muscles to contract and relax, they require a steady source of ATP, ATP. molecules. Okay. And those ATP molecules are manufactured In the mitochondria, largely, they are also manufactured outside of it, but from a... Hang on, park that, we'll get there. The mitochondria produce most of your body's uh, ATP as a consequence of fat and carbohydrate oxidation. A very small amount of your ATP is produced from carbs outside the mitochondria, but if you want energy capacity, you need mitochondria. And those little guys are developed as a consequence of low-intensity training and high, but you can get an hour, hour and a half, two hours a day, in Adrian's case, of low intensity training, driving that stimulus, keeping that mitochondrial mass nice and high, as well as you
2: would get from high intensity training. So that's why you do it. So low intensity training, just to summarize that, doesn't necessarily mean that you are getting more mitochondrial benefit or production based, uh, compared to a high intensity. Because I've always thought that the low intensity was all about how you were going to make more mitochondria and therefore you'd have mm. more endurance ability yeah that's always been the paradigm and i believe
1: it to still be true i've yet to see anyone show per minute of exercise at intensity one versus intensity five one being low five being high the mitochondrial the, the rate of mitochondrial development is higher or lower i've not okay. seen that i stand corrected but i haven't uh-huh. seen that But there are other benefits of low intensity exercise
2: beyond just that anyway.
1: Yeah. Plus there's the volume. So it might actually be that you need an hour and you can't you just can't get it from high. There's a paradigm now on high intensity training where they've taken people and done from one from memory, one of the studies was literally 10 minutes a day of high intensity training and achieved the same mitochondrial changes as they did from an hour a day of of low intensity training. So you can (laughs) you can put this thing into hyperdrive and do 10 minutes of high intensity sprint training. A guy called Martin Jabala, G-I-B-A-L-A, was one of the pioneers of that work. And they showed that you, you can get these adaptations. But generally speaking, the capillarization, the heart and the lung development, and the mitochondria, all of which shifts us to being able to hold and exercise intensity for a long period, happens at low intensities. Now, th- so then you go, okay, well, what about thermoregulatory? That means how well is your body able to lose heat. That's a function we've just spoken about. Sweating, blood flow, uh, the ability to send blood to the skin without compromising the muscle. There's all sorts of adaptations that happen there. Those require practice. Practice makes perfect. Yeah. So you won't get those from very low-intensity training. You'll only get that from harder, high-intensity training, preferably in the heat.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, neuromuscular coordination. If your goal is to run 3 minutes 30 or 4 minutes 30 a, a K, you have to do some training at that intensity, otherwise you don't learn the mechanical skill that's required. You might think, well it's running, what skill can't is there? Can't you just there? do that through aerobic intervals? But the point is you've got to do some of your training there, so that's why you can't do it all long and slow. Yeah. You've got to
2: have some on the higher end of the spectrum. The reason why I asked this is that, I mean, it, it, it is very Uh, controversial, and and it is a question I've always wanted to know. So Maffeturn, his theory around creating uh, speed and ability to run and participate and race at a high level was that he would create aerobic intervals. So that aerobic interval would be 10 by 10 seconds. In other words, your heart rate wouldn't get up to an aerobic state, but you'd still be teaching the body to run faster. Yeah, that's the neuromuscular adaptation That's the the mechanical adaptation. adaptation. So you're saying that modern thinking is that you still need to have those hard anaerobic sessions to yeah. be able to...
1: And that's always been a yeah. thinking. Even the, the famous proponent of long, slow distance was Arthur Lydiard, mm. And when you read the books, you'll see these 100-mile weeks, and they just used to run long and slow. But he also used to do these blocks of really hard interval work where they do 200-meter sprints 10 times, that sort of thing. Mm. So even, even the simplified retelling of an LSD paradigm tends to leave out <laughs> that yeah. they were doing these high-intensity things. So, so yeah, the, the point is that you, you can't get away with one end or the other. That's where polarized training came, came from and comes from. Now, with respect to Adrian, we don't know what his heart rate is when he's going out there and he's doing those easy runs through Johannesburg. Or well, those he, says he's,
2: he says he's 138, so 138, 180 minus. What's the difference there? <laughs> well, that's what he says he's, his heart
1: rate would be if he was applying the Maffetone, but he doesn't train with heart rates. Yeah,
2: I'm, I think he's, he's 42.
1: Well, he is, yeah, yeah. If, if he's, yeah. Yeah so so i guess i guess the question he's asking is is he wasting time and risking injury and overtraining by probably being higher than 138 and i don't think so i I think the mafetane thing is a bit too conservative i can see why it would work for a lot of people but i reckon that adrian would be fine going at a subjective effort that he knows that he can sustain so that subjective effort on his easy days would be four or five out of ten on his hard days, would be 9 out of 10 for those short intervals. And then mm. once in a while, you need what would be called a threshold session, where you are in that, let's call it zone 3, zone 4. Yeah, for prolonged like one periods. Hour. Yeah, that sort of one hour temp, tempo yeah. runs is what you would call it in the magazine, for yeah. instance. Um, FTP type training sessions on the bike. Because you have to learn what it feels like as well, independent of, of just racing. So it's a, it's a tricky question because there are so many different ways to achieve the same objective. That's why the concept is what matters. Mm. Is you have to be applying enough load. So there are people... I mean, 180 minus age would put you at 130. Now, when we go cycling yeah. on the road on a Sunday morning and we do our sort of three to four hours, what is your heart rate? Oh, I'm riding easy with you. And it's one, 115.
2: One, no, am j- j- But joking. it's below
1: the Maffetone limit.
2: Well... Yeah, so on average, it's below the Maffetone limit. But see, this is my second question. So, Maffetone, because he's quoting him, I wasn't going to quote him as well. Is that he was he in his book he wrote about the fact that once you went anaerobic, it was very difficult for your body to go back to aerobic. Mm. So, in other words, if you were training at a lower level, in other words, you were fat burning in theory. Once you went anaerobic, in other words, you now start burning sugar in your in your blood and and mm. and the fast burning fuels. Your body wouldn't return that aerobic state anymore. So in other words, you are losing the benefit of aerobic training as a result of that. So if I'm riding with you and we're riding through town and on a flat road and we're sitting at like, for me, 125, I'm still aerobic. But once we hit our first climb and you disappear, i and trying to chase you, I'm gonna be definitely anaerobic for that session. So my overall heart rate for mm. that session might be 127, but my peaks will be in the 150s. Yeah. So not- the, the question is, is there any, is there any disadvantage in having a overall heart rate that's low versus staying aerobic as opposed to sometimes touching into the anaerobic space. If there
1: is a disadvantage there, it it comes from doing those high intensity things too often and too hard. Right. It's not it's not that you compromise on the low side, it's that you overdo the high side. Okay. Because you're, it's not as binary as I'm aerobic now, I'm anaerobic, it's a, first of all it's a spectrum. Mm where you don't suddenly shift to not requiring oxygen versus using oxygen. It's, it's, it's not like a switch. I mean, it is a threshold, potentially. We have discussed this in our yep. what the FTP episode, but it's not, it's not on or off. So what that means is that when you go for those hard efforts, five minutes up the last five minutes of a climb, and you're well above your threshold, you stop five or six minutes it might take to get down, but then you, you will return to a steady state pretty quickly afterwards yeah there is such a thing as a post-exercise oxygen consumption where you pay back (laughs) what you almost borrowed on loan if you could use that analogy yeah um but but for someone who's fit and adapted like you are that repayback is fairly quick so within five or six minutes of going over the top of the hill and freewheeling down the other side and you you, you're back to normal so really the the danger is if you look back on your training over five or six weeks is are you doing those hard efforts too often and too frequently and too hard that's the problem because then you start to hurt yeah. yourself as a consequence of this chronic excessive intensity overload and the mistake that a lot of people do make and, and hopefully now adrian's still listening to this and getting some value is there is an over-reliance on those hard efforts because we believe that if we want to get better at hard we have to train hard yeah and this is the great paradox is. If you want to get better at those hard efforts, what do you need? You need more mitochondria, more blood, more oxygen, more fuel efficiency. You actually get those benefits training lower yeah. and higher. Yeah. So the mix is important. But just because you're training low doesn't mean you're wasting your time. And I think a lot of athletes make that error. So they tend to push too hard mm. and their training sort of starts to find its way into the middle because psychologically they think they're getting more value there than on the left of the middle or, or the, you know if that makes sense yeah it's that gray area mm. so yeah. you got to stay out of those so in the absence of measuring heart rate like adrian's not doing as long as his perception of effort is comfortable he's finishing those easy runs feeling like that was easy i could do that again if you finish those what's supposed to be an easy run or an easy cycle feeling a little bit tired a little bit hurt a little bit like actually i could have done that a little longer but that that was tough mm. eventually the physiology will catch up to you mm. because your cortisol levels your sympathetic response that's your fight or flight adrenaline levels hormones the, what's happening in the central nervous system
2: is just constantly switched
1: on and eventually that becomes unsustainable
2: and i guess if you're doing that sunday ride at a high intensity and i i mean correct me if i'm wrong on this like, again having spoken to a lot of coaches over the years that the idea that you train, e- you train easy and hard is that if you train those easy days easy, those high-intensity sessions become more valuable. So you're not going into a high-intensity session on a Tuesday morning having broken yourself on a Sunday. You've actually got enough recovery to be able to get the most out of that high-intensity. Mm. But if you get to that high-intensity session on the Tuesday after a heavy Sunday ride, you're not going to be able to perform because you're still going to be fatigued. Correct. So, so the professionals, what they do very cleverly, and we've seen this during the season now, when I look at some of the dots of the professionals like Robert Hessink and those kind of mm-hmm. guys on Strava, they are riding long, slow miles at a very low heart rate. But there are sections on that course where they're absolutely winded up. And in a total of 200 kilometers on one of Robert H- H- Hessink's rides the other day, I think he did about three minutes something along that sort of line, where he was absolutely flat out. But the rest of it, he was literally in zone one and zone two. Mm. But it may be an example of just how training easy means that when you train hard, you get the best result. Correct, because then you,
1: you see what happens is if you, if, you, if you allow your easy rides to move towards the middle, it sucks your hard rides back towards the middle also, and everything starts to aggregate in the middle, where you yeah. get neither the best benefit nor the recovery. Yeah. So that's the that's the long term issue here, is yeah. that your zone one becomes a two, two becomes a three. That builds low level fatigue. This is the kind of like weird sneaky fatigue that you don't know is there mm. until you push hard and you say, Jeepers, actually I thought I was good, but my legs just don't have it nothing. in me. I feel like I've got yeah. a, I got punctures in my in my quads. Yeah. Because now all of a sudden what was a zone five became a zone four. <laughs> and your zone four intensities become three. And in the end everything's clumped around three. So you're getting neither the high-end neuromuscular benefit, nor are you getting the low-end capillarization mitochondria. Because, you see, there, there are some problems. When you go too hard in those middle intensities, and the, the, the process by which our bodies adapt to training is amazing. I mean, if you, think, if you thought L G was <laughs> like blown away, like you, when you start to look at a molecular level, what's happening in the muscles to drive these changes. So I can tell you that we make more mitochondria. Think about how there's a signal and then there's a signal that gets transmitted from one. It's called. It's a process called cell signaling. And eventually, it turns our DNA. It activates DNA. And then we get, oh, I'm, I'm, it's unbelievable. Really, it's. A, I remember studying in biochemistry. It was the most fascinating area I've ever studied. I loved oh. it. Um, if it hadn't been for sport, I would have gone into that world. Yeah. But but the cell signaling processes can be compromised by excessively high intensity because when that when the energy density in our cells drops too low we stop gaining the adaptations that we wanted from a certain training session. So, so in actual fact, you might block the benefit that you wanted from low intensity by being slightly too high intensity. And that's where it starts to become a problem. And that does sneak up on you. You won't know it yeah. until you knew it. And then it might be a week too late and you need a week to recover from it.
2: And it's interesting because I think you know, many of us who are relatively amateur cyclists and runners on any kind of sport you participate in, riding with your, your mates and that sort of thing, it's very hard to necessarily stick in the zones. And we had an experience um, on Sunday riding a long road ride where we actually joined a couple of um, top ladies on the, on the route, and um, one of them, disappeared up Chapman's Peak with you. The other one was quite restrained and it was they were told to do five hours easy. When we looked at their straw afterwards, they'd averaged a pretty, pretty low average, but they'd definitely gone into some sections where the one lady who went with us went with you and, uh, and Richard up the, up the climb really hard. Um, but overall, their, their, their effort level was relatively low, except for a couple of sections where mm. they'd gone hard. And that's what we're saying is the formula here. Yeah, is that when
1: you go out for an easy day, Make it an easy day.
2: Yeah. And I suppose um, for them it was
1: an easy day, even and, if it was five hours. Yeah. And reassure yourself that that easy day is not a waste of time. Yeah. You're not just ticking over to accumulate miles. The yeah. junk miles happen when you go a little bit too hard, not too easy. Yeah. So you're still getting the capillarization, the mitochondria, the fat burning, the fuel efficiency benefits from those easy days. And, and then,
2: psychologically, it's nice to be able to just say, hey, today we're just going to enjoy ourselves and ride three hours, four hours. But... We're not going to attack every climb, right? You know? But then, then it's interesting because then there's the other
1: psychological, the other psychological coin, or other side of the coin, if you wish. And Adrian alludes to that: is if he, if he, strictly religiously obeyed the Maffetone principle, he might lose the enjoyment he gets from training. Yeah, because he and would be training point. so slowly that he'd actually stop. Because the sensation of speed, whether you're running or cycling, and speed is relative, by the way, you don't have to be going at um, Pogacar speeds on a climb yeah. the sensation speed is fun same yeah. thing for <laughs> running you don't have to be you don't have to be running 245 a K and Elid Kipchogi. 545 a K can feel fast mm. that's fun so yeah. I, I, I would encourage people to run to effort perception not heart rate and to run for enjoyment but just be very disciplined about easy days must be easy so if it's effort perception it's got to be 3 or 4 not 6 or 7 that's
2: not easy anymore there's a nice rule that's um I often think about if I'm riding on my own or riding with maybe one other person that's on a similar schedule to me, take advantage of the fact that when you can ride easy or run easy, run easy. Mm. Because there's always the temptation when you're running with others or on the weekend or whatever to run too hard. So always err on the side of easy because generally most people ride, run, exercise probably too hard, particularly on the endurance sports side. Yeah, definitely. And I think if you're going to make a mistake
1: in response to what we've just said, well not a mistake, if you're going to take action in response to what we've just said, 95% of you should go easier. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, <laughs>
1: that's <laughs> absolutely That's not. that's. I mean, I hate blanket statements, but that one's probably close to landing yeah. for most people listening to this. Yeah. is, And not easier all the time. Sometimes you need to go harder. Yeah. But most of the time, you probably just need to dial it back one degree, one notch, and just reassure, yeah. be reassured that that's not a wasted session. Go easier there. In order to go harder when you want to. Exactly. Now I don't know whether that's a, that might not be Adrian. It sounds to me like he's he's got it under control, but try it. Try it and see. Give it a give it four to six weeks of just making your easier and slightly easier, mm. and see what it does when you actually then do go out for a five k or a ten k time trial or race, when you actually do challenge your physiology off the back of an easier block and see how much better
2: you might feel. And then if you do, you find your formula. So here's just one. Additional thing, and I know we don't want to spend too much time on, on one question alone, but this was a an interesting byproduct of of aerobic training when I was doing this in my twenties, and I was filling the marathon schedule. Is because I was basing everything on 180 minus my age, I started to think about form, on the run and form on the bike. So I wanted to ride as well as I could at a given heart rate, in other words, a low heart rate, and I found myself get into position that when I raced, my form in every respect from when you're running and you're running at an easy pace, you tend to be more relaxed. You tend to be more focused on how you're striding, how efficient you are. On the bike, it's the same thing. You start thinking about how your pedal stroke's working, are you being efficient, are you pulling through, all that sort of thing. And the the result of it is your form starts to improve because you're not focused on killing yourself every time you're gonna go and exercise. You're sometimes focused on being as efficient at a given heart rate. So there's a, it's almost a byproduct of it, and I, and it was a real, it was a real byproduct that I really felt made a big difference to me when I was racing triathlon back in my twenties, um, mm-hmm. and and that was probably my fittest time purely because of that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I would, I would encourage people to explore lower intensity training. Yeah. And as I say, give it a block of four to six weeks. Use it for what you've just described there focusing on other things yeah don't neglect the high intensity stuff but keep them separate as much as possible and if as i say after four to six weeks you go and you do your normal 5k park run whatever it might be wherever in the world you are depending what you have access to right now if that if that in high intensity effort feels better then you've unlocked Mm. a change that you should then stick with if it doesn't and you want to go back to how you used to train then nothing ventured nothing gained
2: but give it a go there we go Thanks so much, Ali, that was a great question. Um, we're going to move on to John R. McGibbon, who says, Given the impact of mechanical doping in running is now greater than doping through performance-enhancing drugs, with PBs and world records beginning and being meaningless, should WADA, in other words, the World Anti-Doping Association, consider the issue in the absence of meaningful action by World Athletics? Alternatively, if a major World Athletic sponsor developed a PED, a performance-enhancing drug, Will Athletics turn a similar blind eye? And I suppose what John's trying to say is that the we, we did a podcast last year on the shoe that broke running, talking mm. particularly about the Nike Alpha Fly.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
2: the authorities, should water, I mean, mechanical doping, is it real doping, I suppose that's the question. Yeah. Should there be some restrictions based on the fact that mechanical doping is assisting running particularly? I suppose it's a it's a moral question in many respects, isn't it? Yeah. And so
1: John's John's question is, should water get involved here? Uh, because quite apparent that world athletics is not going to do anything about it um (laughs) i've got a quote from an interview with sebastian Coe. he spoke to i think sean engel or the guardian most likely engel at the guardian and he's i'll I'll share that quote with you in a moment but the short answer is water water can't get involved because it's it's actually a governance issue not a law rule issue so all the sports are signatories to water so they've agreed that doping is bad okay (laughs) and they're not going to contravene what water then sets out annually, or not necessarily annually, but as a prohibited list. The, annual, the list is annual. So we're going to test for drugs, X, Y, Z, steroids, stimulants and uh, blood boost boosting agents. That's different from a regulation that a sport sets up for itself around its own equipment. Now in my opinion, and this is what we have discussed in the past, athletics has failed to regulate its equipment. And they've allowed technology to distort the meaning of performance to the extent that, as John has said, world records and PBs have
2: become meaningless
1: in comparison to what they meant in twenty fifteen.
2: They don't have yes, no meaning they, at all. They, yeah, but the playing fields are now supposedly level because now there are guidelines as to what you can do with the shoe in yeah. terms of stack height, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So anybody, any manufacturer can obviously develop a, a shoe within those guidelines. Right, and that's, that's what World
1: Athletics is saying we've done to solve this. I don't believe that solves it. I, it might be that two or three manufacturers can find the same benefit that Nike got within those new parameters, but those parameters are wide enough that I still think that there is enough advantage to be gained that the competitive advantage might not um, ever go away for the first mover. And I know Jeff Burns, who we've spoken about mm. is of similar opinion. he's now seen or run or tested three or four of them, and has said to me, anyway, and I think he shared this on Let's Run," is that he believes that the alpha fly remains superior. And then the other problem, and again, I want to regurgitate what we spoke about in those two episodes on the shoe, is that when you have a shoe that could give you four percent on average, some people will be getting seven and some people get one. The average between those two is four, but there's a six percent difference between a high and a low responder. And so yeah. it means that there's now a new variable that determines athleticism in running. Before you were seeing heart, lungs, and brain, and muscles and tendons. Mm-hmm. Now you're seeing all those things plus shoe adaptations or shoe responsiveness. And that's not right to me. So, so I think athletics has lost uh, a, a section or a good deal of its um, validity in performance. Sebastian Coe says he's not worried about it. He says, I'm pretty calm. The specific quote is, I don't think we've reached the point where world records are being handed out like confetti. I don't know, I mean, maybe at his wedding there was a lot more (laughs) confetti, but if I look back last year, we had 5k track road for men, we had 10k track and road for men. The the road 10k went a few times. The half marathon record has fallen numerous times, and multiple men are running faster by a lot than the old record. (laughs) The marathon record's gone plus gimmicky um, under 2 the women's marathon record is gone. The half, Anyway, they're all gone. Yeah. There's not a there's not a survivor. There's a lot of confetti in there. So that seems to me like a lot of confetti. Yeah, but anyway, anyway. Uh, then he says, I still marvel at Peter Snell, who ran world records on grass tracks. I don't know why that's relevant. I mean, they were all running on grass tracks. Mm. If you were marveling at Snell running at them on grass and everyone else was in tartan, then I'd be, okay, this is a good one. Um, so anyway, he says, I'm calm about this, that sports shouldn't interfere with innovation. And I, you see... Coe's in the middle of of two imperatives one is the imperative to have commercial investment in the sport and the other is the imperative to have athletic performances mean what athletic performances used to mean and he's trying to juggle them and i don't think you can so anyway there's a there's as you say it's a moral and an ethical dilemma but Wada can't get involved not least of all because governance within a sport in its regulations and equipment is a Sports issue, not water, And the other thing is, water. I don't think has the expertise to go in and assess. Because imagine you do it for athletics. Now you've got to go and say, well, should we be looking at tennis, rackets? Yeah. Uh, some point in the future, the same might happen again in swimming. Golf has seen a revolution. Okay, golf's not a signatory. Although it's at the Olympics now, so it is actually. Is it? I never knew mm, that. was played in Rio for the first oh, time. Oh, that's true. Yes. Remember, many of them didn't go because... That's of, true. <laughs> allegedly because of Zika um so so anyway the the uh yeah it would require so much of a restructuring of what is purpose that i just don't see it happening yeah but um i wish that the sport had done what swimming did you know, they drew a line that was a little bit, drew a box that was much smaller and
2: didn't allow people to play in. But here we are. So. Yeah. Well, as we've said before in our podcast that we did uh, last year about the shoe that broke running, and kind of the horses bolted from the stable in this one, and exactly. uh, in many ways we, we were probably will, will will look back at this time and and say, so, well, that's when the sport did change. Mm. I, mean, I suppose if the le- playing fields are level five years down the road and all the shoe manufacturers are. Got a similar shoe that gives a similar benefit. We will just say, well, that was one of those things. Yeah, but, because
1: eventually, know. eventually, you'll go onto the IWF's websites or yeah. these 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 websites that track all time best performances, and there'll be nothing left prior to 2016. Yes. Yeah, oh, so, so, we'll so like, go. then it'll be out of sight, out of mind, yeah. and nobody will remember when 20418 was a really good marathon yeah. because it will be <laughs> the 733rd best time, yeah. and the 732 ahead of it will all be in new shoes. Yeah. So, so. The record books will be rewritten so fast that we could shred the old ones and turn them into confetti. Yeah. Said? I mean, it's almost happened in a year. Pretty much. Yeah. That's already what they look like. I mean, the half marathon, yeah. and the, it's, it's yeah. nuts. Yeah. If COVID, COVID slowed it down. I mean, that's the only reason we're not buried in confetti. Yeah. Um, so, so that will happen. I still, as I say, I still got reservations about how large the response might be from one shoe to the next in the same human and what that means. And what it means, for instance, in college athletes who can't get the shoe and who mm-hmm. might be two percent better than everyone else and suddenly find themselves one percent worse because they have inferior shoes. And so, so like there's all that little stuff that you'll never see, you know, it's yeah. a known unknown. But as you say,
2: the horse is bolted. Now we just have to keep up with a faster horse. That's why I used to love school days back in the day when you barefoot. ran on a grass track. Everybody had to run barefoot in our school. Uh, we had a nice beautiful grass track and uh, the best runner won because <laughs> there is no mechanical advantage at all. It yeah. just had to be how good, you've, mm-hmm. how good your muscles were.
1: Yeah, and that's eventually memories will fade. Yeah, And by 2024, we'll be saying the best runner won. Yeah. But it'll mean a different thing compared to what it meant in 2014. Yeah. But that's going to be the
2: new normal, quotes, yeah. unquote. It's a good debate. Simon Bo Segad Christensen, thank you very much for your question. It says, uh, Dear Ross and Mike, thanks for a good program. I thought it would be really exciting that you tackled the topic topic of occlusion training. When I read this, I thought, I have no idea what occlusion training is. So Ross, enlighten me because I didn't know what it was. When I read this. I thought,
1: oh man, this is a bad idea asking our <laughs> asking our listeners questions because now there's going to be some complicated ones. And this is one of them. It's a really interesting topic. Um, it refers to the practice where you deliberately stop blood flow to a limb and then do weight training on that limb. The idea being that by restricting the blood flow, so occlusion training, occlusion meaning obviously to occlude the blood, is well, also... But-
2: Strapping it tight. So,
1: tourniquet or tourniquet, depending tornique, on which side yeah. of the Atlantic you're on. <laughs> uh, cuffs, like blood pressure cuffs. Like You've been for a blood pressure test yeah. where they strap a cuff around your upper arm, just yeah. above the biceps, and then they inflate it. Right. That's one method. Right. And then elastic bands. So okay. you can tie an elastic band around. So, so there's three ways you can do it. Tourniquet, cuff, or an elastic band. So, right. for instance, you would do that right at the upper arm just under your armpit and then you would do bicep curls. The theory is that if you lift, if you are doing occlusion therapy and you lift lighter weights, you get the same benefits as when you lift heavy weights. So we'll go into the reasons for that now. And the reason this is interesting to Simon right now, he says, especially in the light that with gyms closed, not not many of us have access to heavy weights and so occlusion training might be an alternative. So the prevailing wisdom Or is it just bull? (laughs) That's what he said. That's what he said, yes. That's why he follows us because he's got he's got a bull um, sensor. So (laughs) the prevailing wisdom has always been, and we'll get into some of this in a moment as well, challenging that, is that if you want to build muscle and strength, you have to lift between sixty and eighty percent of your one rep max. So your one rep max is defined as the maximum weight you could lift in one go. Tricky to measure accurately. You've got to have someone spot you on a a bench press, depending on your task. But you're going to fail. That's the point. And the point at which you fail, just below that, is your max. Now we say, all right, your training program will consist of five to eight reps at 75, 80% of that. The the occlusion training paradigm is that you can actually lift 20 or 30% of your one rep max, so much lighter. So instead of doing bicep curls with a 20 kilogram uh, dumbbell, I'm now going to do them with an eight or nine kilogram dumbbell, but because I've restricted the blood flow to my biceps, I'm going to get the same benefits as I would have got with a heavier weight. That's the premise. So you can see why, if you don't have heavy weights, this is this is an attractive proposition to you. So why might this work? It has its origins in the 1970s in Japan. It's called katsu training and the first papers on it came out in like the late 1990s. So it's relatively, I suppose, in the grand scheme of things new. The theory is that when you restrict the blood flow, what you are trying to do is you're trying to stop the venous blood from coming back out of the muscle. Make sense? So if I've got my my cuff at the top of my arm, the blood in my biceps cannot return to the body. And so you get increased buildup of metabolic byproducts of exercise. So the metabolic strain on the muscle is higher as a consequence of restricting the blood flow. And the, the, the trigger that drives muscle strength and muscle hypertrophy is in large part metabolic strain. Make sense? So exactly the same as for endurance training, what we're doing is we're causing metabolic and hormonal disrupt- disruption or disturbance, and that disruption triggers the, the pathways that then allow us to adapt. Mm-hmm. What we're trying to do here is the same thing, metabolic strain. So it's hydrogen ions, phosphate, lactate, potentially other things, calcium might be among those. Those are now accumulating in the muscle in greater levels, triggering the cell signaling pathways to cause muscle development and strength and growth that would have occurred with heavier weights, but we've, we've managed to do this with lighter weights. Does that make sense? It makes sense, but of course my question is, is there any evidence right. that it works? So there, there actually is. and so since as i said it's a relatively new area so there's not maybe the depth of evidence or the breadth and as a as a point of concept this this kind of research shows you the complexity of doing good exercise science stuff because imagine you're asking that question is there evidence that a thing works you you now need to design a study around that but there are so many moving parts here so do you take well-trained or untrained people Mm. do you make them lift heavy or light what what's the control group look like how do you do the occlusion? Is it going to be a cuff? Because in the, oh, studies, this terrifying, this in the studies, they describe like 120 millimeters pressure or 240, mm-hmm. or it's an elastic band pulled to a perception of six or seven out of 10 for pain. So there's lots of variability oh. there. What's the training program look like? Yeah. Is it three sets of eight? Is it six sets of six? I mean, who, so you've got to put that together. How long is it? Do you do it for a week? We've got to give it eight weeks. Should it be four months. How do you assess it afterwards? Do you assess one rep max? Do you assess fatigue? Do you assess the size of the muscle? If you do size, how do you do the size? Because there's different ways to assess. So anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that when scientists ask a question, does occlusion or, or blood flow resistance training work, there are lots of different ways to explore the answer to that question. So. For that reason, the, 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 the research is quite difficult to combine. Mm. But there is a systematic review that came out last year in the American Journal of Sports Medicine. So it's a pretty good journal published in 2020 by an author whose name is, let me just see here, how's oh, my eyes? Uh, Wartman, Ryan Wartman. And basically, they found 21 articles, 21 studies on this. They kicked out the ones that they felt weren't of sufficient quality. You know, it's poor control groups they didn't describe the people they didn't describe the training programs etc and they were left with 10 of those 10 8 showed significantly more muscle development and strength gains than if you had done it without occlusion and similar to what if you would have got if you'd lifted heavy weights okay so that's pretty good 80 percent of the studies the good studies show a benefit Three of the studies show performance in sport gets better, and three of the studies show that the size of the muscle improves or increases compared to a control group as well.
2: So, on balance, I feel like, I feel yes. like we should send out an indemnity form with this so, podcast. So that's my
1: concern also, is safety. So yeah. there's another there's another review by uh, Pearson et al. in 2015, which looked specifically at safety concerns. And this this other review that I mentioned in 2020 reports that in those 10 studies which covered from memory about 250 people Mm -hmm. not a single side effect was reported however that's obviously in a monitored situation in a lab where they're being supervised why might there be safety concerns the the main the main issue by which there might be a safety concern would be um, your arm could fall off Well, look if you if you don't if you keep that if you keep that occlusion for too long then you you've got problems.
2: Well, I mean I joke, but I mean that is that's the thing that comes to mind. I mean you can't indefinitely. No, so you you have to understand how long it takes for your
1: blood flow to stop. So the rule of thumb would be occlude it while you're training and not while you're not. Right. So don't don't leave the cuff on during the rest period. Don't sleep with it, no. But it, it it it's really very interesting. So they are reporting very low safety concerns with it. Sure. Unless you've got some contraindications like some vascular issues, um, hyper, hypertension for example, a uh, risk of clotting and coagulation, then they're saying that you would be advised not to use it. But they're saying in healthy people without such conditions that it is useful. And I mean, there are so for instance, there's a there's a study that's been done where and this is not even occlusion, but it illustrates the principle where they basically did 12 weeks of training. And in some of them, they did high load, long rests in between sets. Mm-hmm. And in others, of them they did high load, low rest in between sets. So now they're lifting the same weight, the only difference is how much rest do you get between them. And the group that got less rest got better strength and size gains than the group that got more rest. So but what that, is that? that's logical isn't it that means yes and and the, the point is that rest is when your body is able to clear out those metabolic products of exercise it's able to restore the hydrogen you the see? atp levels to get rid of the phosphate and the hydrogens yeah. and the lactate if you take that away you get better gains i'm with you and that's what occlusion training is, what is trying training to do is. so that's yeah. that's kind of like an indirect argument for the theory of why this thing works So the studies that have been done show lactate levels are higher with occlusion training. pH and phosphate levels are higher. You you probably, because of the fatigue, because now you've got low oxygen and blood supply to that muscle, the slow twitch muscle fibers need support because they fail. And now you have to start recruiting fast twitch muscle fibers. So normally when you lift 20% of your one rep max, you're only recruiting your slow twitch fibers. Yeah. If they fail, now you have to start adding your fast twitch fibers to lift to 20 percent of one rep max weight. That's going to drive strength gains as well because you're getting more recruitment. So the, the rule of thumb or the principle is that you want maximal recruitment or as high recruitment as possible in order to drive the change. And that's what this method is allegedly doing yeah. and seems to be doing. So it really is quite interesting as a, as a way for people to explore gains in strength without needing to lift heavier weights. There are other ways to do this, by the way. There are studies, and and one of the people who we want to get on this podcast is Stuart Phillips. who's in Canada, and he's led a lot of studies. And as far back as 2010, there was a guy called Bird, B-U-R-D, who authored a paper with Stuart Phillips where they found that if you lift 80% of max compared to 30% of max, you can achieve the same gains in, in muscle size as long as you go to fatigue both times. Fatigue is the key, not weight. So yeah. If you if you're gonna if you're gonna avoid fatigue, then obviously weight matters. But if you go to fatigue, and that makes sense because the last three or four reps with a low weight and you're maximally fatigued, I mean it's your thirtieth repetition. Yeah. you're going to be recruiting fast twitch fibers because you're tired. The metabolic stress is going to be higher. The mechanical strain is going to be higher, and it's going to drive the same cell signaling processes that you would have got with heavier weights. So yeah so simon's question is is interesting because it's out there many people wouldn't have there is evidence it works
2: but there's actually evidence that it works um i mean i know we're not minimal evidence for risk we're not we're not in the game of necessarily advising people the right way to do this but is there a way of doing this the right way i mean i mean I, i imagine that personal trainer would be the right person to do this with somebody who understands how it works even though you're saying the risks are low they are potentially supervised studies that have been doing that. And we don't you know, I I find it uncomfortable to think that somebody's gonna go and get his wife's hair band tonight and put it around <laughs> on his top arm and then well decide to do it because they they could be <laughs> Well, it likely. doesn't sound physiologically like the right thing to do Yeah, and in that in that study by um
1: wortman i think it was they they talked about the range of pressure there's a table in that paper by the yeah. way and this is a free paper by the way it's american journal of sports medicine it's yeah. you don't have to be a academic or pay for the for the articles anyone who's listening and interested go have a look table one in that paper i think has got all the studies and it actually talks about how they did the occlusion whether it was an elastic band or a pressure cuff the pressure cuff is obviously then you can control exactly how much pressure there is the elastic band you're subjective Mm -hmm. um i suspect that a lot of times if this method fails it's because the pressure is not high enough yeah um so you probably need to have quite high pressure you need it to be enough in theory to stop the venous blood but without restricting the arterial in in practice you probably stop both yeah Which means that you you don't want to do it for too long because then you end up getting an ischemic (laughs) ischemic limb which is not great so so the advice would be do it very cautiously uh don't do your whole session like this the first time you try it do one set of your exercises on the biceps or the or the you can you can also tie this cuff obviously around your quad and then do squats and leg extensions that kind of stuff so do one set see how it goes you're likely to incur quite significant muscle damage if you do it for the first time too much, and then you'll know about it because for three or four days you'll be walking around like you've been beaten with a baseball bat. So, so the, again, the body will sort of regulate and prevent you from overdoing it. But I think you just have to go into it like excessively
2: cautiously. Yeah. And. Uh, well, I promise that when we put the show notes in this time, we will put a link to that yeah, I'll send group you of studies. Links. So, Ross, if you could send me that, we'll put it up on the show notes because mm-hmm. I think it is important for people to research it properly and uh, look at the ways of doing that. And we, we take no responsibility for arms falling off or limbs dislodging. Yeah, <laughs> in the next just, few be, just be careful. Just be careful. Be, but be, again, be I smart. Can't s-
1: the, the, the papers all conclude that at this point there is minimal safety risk. Yeah. Long term hasn't been studied. So let's be clear about that. Yeah, and f- I want to say foolish use, but but aggressive use of occlusion probably is not advised. Yeah, because you you want to really do your exercise with it, then release do yeah. the exercise, then release. You don't want to have a tourniquet around your arm for forty five minutes in your whole session. That would be reckless. Yeah.
2: Right, let's move on to our next question. That comes from Catherine Hickey, who says, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Thank you, Catherine. Says, thank you for keeping us knowledgeable and entertained. I'm one of the 40 plus percentage of women who experience menstrual, gynae, reproductive issues and had a hysterectomy at 40. Happily, I'm totally cured and living in a much more comfortable life, etc, etc. I'd love to hear you discuss how the problems women can suffer affect sport and what current research is being done. I coach mainly women and girls, and I have to make modifications to programs for my clients to accommodate a wide variety like PMDD, endometriosis, and menopause. Thank you from Catherine Hickey. So, I mean, this is a subject that we will definitely have to bring in an expert to discuss in detail. Now, maybe we can just look at some broad strokes um, and sort of research on this about how the issues that around menstrual cycles affect performance and health and all those things. Um, That's just that Catherine's talking about. Yeah, I mean, at the end of last
1: year, we committed that we were going to do a series this year on women's health, exercise and performance specifically. Yeah. I think we reiterated that last week, or maybe, I I, I don't recall. Um, But it it clearly is an issue that we have to explore. In our first season, when the Mary Kane story hit the news, we did a series with uh, first Trent Stellingworth and his wife talking about how an elite athlete navigates some of the issues that Catherine has raised. And we did an interview with Amelia Boone where we try to relate her practical experiences. So so Catherine has, has quite appropriately raised things that we need to discuss. We, I, I need, certainly, I mean, I'm not going to speak for you, but I need someone in here who's really an expert on this field because I don't think yeah. I could do it justice. And I'd actually, it would actually be um, <laughs> counterproductive for me to try and read up and then speak about this because there are people whose life's work is understanding these issues and yeah. they would be far better than i would be so unfortunately for Catherine, we're not going to answer that question now but we are going to commit that we're going to explore this big time because the way i see it there are three things number one is that women have menstrual challenges to exercise so in other words the menstrual cycle affects performance mm. it can enhance or worsen depending on the time one relative to the other then exercise in turn affects menstrual function so it works both ways and then you get issues and she's listed some of them pmdd endometriosis and menopause which are also going to affect exercise as a consequence a unique set of conditions that men don't have to be worried about but women do so really there are three themes we need to explore it's exercise on health health on exercise and then for want of a better word failure of health or or challenges to health so these are these are massive issues that we need to discuss but they're they're issues we need an expert in here sitting in a third chair to go through because there is a lot of research Um, I was I felt bad at how unsatisfactory it is so I did like a little bit of research there's a really the best website I was able to find on menstrual dysfunction caused by exercise and now we're talking about things like REDS that we discussed before is healthforperformance.co.uk so health and then the number four performance.co.uk a lot of resources there quite good material i I like the look of it it was pretty good and then there are podcasts as well stacy sims is a researcher who's done a great deal on this um her podcast i saw one earlier today actually it's called wild health podcast yeah in this particular episode they're talking about fueling and other differences for women athletes and so these things affect everything fuel injury risk Yep. Many football teams, for instance, are now working on women or female-specific injury rehabilitation programs because it's recognized that the risk of certain injuries is higher in women yeah. than it is in men. It's a process, isn't it? It's well, is more of an issue with women. Yeah, particularly with menopause. Yeah. But ACL injuries are believed yeah. to be much more prevalent in women athletes. And so, <laughs> for instance, football teams are now trying to track menstrual function as a risk factor for ACL injuries and again that's an example I've seen this I know that it exists but I'm out of my depth trying to explain why it exists and how it should be managed and that's where we need to get yeah. um, someone who does so yeah that, that's certainly a topic worth, worth exploring
2: so yeah, thanks very much, Catherine. And uh, I think we will definitely will be committed to uh, doing maybe not one, uh, one podcast, maybe a couple of podcasts on this issue. As as Ross has said, there's potentially not enough research out there on something that affects fifty percent of the population. It's yep. quite extraordinary. Yeah. So our final question for today, and as I said, we're going to divide this podcast into two. We will do another set of questions from our Patreon members, um, probably a bit late in February. But uh, this one comes from Pete Williams, who says, "Morning, guys. I look forward to an excellent year of science support content. My question is, how accurate or reliable are estimates of VO2 max on the iPhone exercise and Garmin apps likely to be? My iPhone says that I'm 53.5, and my Garmin says." 59 point2 which is a significant difference in mm. vo2 measurement I mean I'm just gonna throw this at you and say it's over to you Ross because it is a it is a it's a it's a complex thing isn't it because yeah we, we don't want to slam
1: too many technologies here yeah you know, there's, there's computer networks and algorithms here like that I don't think we would believe if we saw people yeah. trying to figure out how to estimate this so so vo2 max for those who don't know, is maximal oxygen consumption, which is typically measured in a lab. You stick a big mask on your face and you breathe in and out through a tube, which then measures the gas that you've breathed in and out, and it works out how much oxygen per minute you are
2: able to consume. And if you've ever done a VO2 max test, and I've done a couple of them, they are hugely entertaining for those watching but not so entertaining for those doing because it is a very hard test because you basically go to maximum fatigue. Yeah, typically typically
1: they ramp it up. So you start really slow, you fast walk, slow jog, and they get faster and faster and faster and faster until eventually you can't keep pace. So they take you to your maximal performance limit and they measure the oxygen levels consumption at that point. Now that requires access to a laboratory and specialist equipment, potentially money which most people, many people don't have access or time for. And so what the technologies are trying to do is estimate that based on what they measure in you when you train. So for example, Garmin is able to measure your speed through GPS and your heart rate mm-hmm. uh, through the, either the wrist or the, the chest strap. I, I must be honest, I don't know how Apple does it. Um, I presume that you have to have an app that measures heart rate, otherwise it's a guess but the but the principle that they're using so let's talk garmin because i do know a little bit about this one Yep, there is a linear relationship between oxygen consumption and speed or power on a bike same thing so if you are running at four minutes a k your oxygen use is x if you're running at five minutes a k it's y and that's lower so the the slower you go the less oxygen you use or vice versa as you speed up you use more and more oxygen and that's more or less a linear relationship so if you imagine in your head close your eyes not if you're driving um, a graph of oxygen consumption against speed in meters per second it's going up in a straight line yeah it's a pretty logical conclusion. Yeah. yeah but the key is that it's linear Right. Okay, so it's because some some things in physiology are exponential. Being it's a it's a it's, it's a, a dead straight dead line. Straight line. Okay. Yeah. So right. if you doubled your speed, you double your oxygen consumption. Okay. Yeah. Oh, more interesting. or less. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, hang on. It's not necessarily one to one. So two, yeah, yeah, that's more or less. In other more words, less it's not holds. exponential. No. It, in fact, it would hold. It would okay. hold. But it's not exponential. Right. It's not like it's not like as you go from three meters a second to four to five to six, it suddenly kicks up and takes off like a COVID. Vac- okay. COVID. Um, yeah, Case number graph, you've all yes. seen those in the last while. That's exponential growth. So you yeah. want to see exponential, look at COVID around the world. Yeah, So it's linear. And it's similar enough between people that you can start to compare them to one another. Yes, I say similar, not identical. We know that running economy is relatively narrow between human beings. Mm-hmm. Running economy is how much oxygen you use per kilometer per kilogram. We tested four or five years ago now a bunch of elite Kenyans, the best of them had running economy of about 175 180 so that means this guy was using 180 mils per kilogram per kilometer the average is about 210 and then the less economical people are in the 220 to 230 so mm-hmm. clearly when we compare Kenyan to someone who's very uneconomical there's a big difference but this most of the population are around 200 to 210. Okay. Does that make so there's sense? So the ba- there's a band. There's a there's a band into which most people would fall. Right. Now, what that means is that you can make a, an assumption. It's not a perfect assumption, but it's an assumption that if someone is running at a speed of, say, 4 meters per second, their oxygen consumption will be X, plus or minus a low, dif- low range. Okay? Does this make sense? Yep. If that someone is running at five meters per second, their oxygen consumption will fall within a relatively narrow range. And in fact, the slower you go, the, the tighter this looks. So five minutes a K, most people will use more or less 40 mils of oxygen per kilogram per, per minute. Uh, per. It's incredible that there is
2: such a similarity either. I'm you know, quite look, blown away by that. Yeah, you know, so the most
1: economical person in the world might be using 35 and the average is 38, 39, wow. and the worst is 41, 42.
2: Okay, so this isn't that so, far off.
1: Yeah, so so that's so that's the first source of error, is individual differences in economy. Yeah. But it's not a massive... It's not like one guy's twofold more than the other. Right, actually, yeah. the difference is 4, or 5%. So it's plausible to think that that measurement is reasonably accurate. That one anyway. So the right. relationship between oxygen consumption and running speed is reasonably accurate when you infer it across a population all right so now what so we know that and and by the way the difference is that if i'm running at five minutes a k and elliot kipchoge is running at five minutes a k we're using more or less the same oxygen but his capacity is twice mine yeah so my five minutes a k and i'm using 35 moles of oxygen per minute per kilogram that's 70 percent of my max Yes. He's only at 50% of his max yeah. or 45 That's right. the difference, right? But at, at that speed, our oxygen consumption per kilogram per minute per, is, is more. You're with yeah, me, yeah? I'm
2: with you. Okay. Yeah,
1: I'm amazed by that. So that's your first point. The second point and the second thing that Garmin and all these t- companies are doing is they're saying, right, well, now in addition to the relationship between oxygen and speed, there's also a relationship between heart rate and speed. So A versus B works and now A versus C works. So if we know that oxygen and speed tracks and we know that heart rate speed tracks we're going to start tracking oxygen and heart rate. So we made a triangle out of this. Makes sense, eh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the, the most basic way of illustrating that is if you're running at your max heart rate they're assuming you're at your max VO2. And so if you're if if we knew your oxygen at any given speed and now you're at your max heart rate we're going to assume that that's going to be your oxygen at max and that's your VO2 max. Right. So but now Most people don't run at their max heart rate. Some will, but not all do. But you're running at 70% of max heart rate, 80%. If you're using the (laughs) Phil method we spoke earlier, you might be at 45% some days. So what Garmin is then doing is they're gathering all this data. But then you see they have to be very clever because they've got to filter it out. Because when you stop at a traffic light, your running speed is zero and your heart rate is still 145 when you go down a very steep hill, the opposite happens. Your heart rate is low, but your running speed is fast. Yeah. When you're go- going over soft surfaces, they have to take that section out because now you're going to go slower for a higher heart rate. When you go through a tunnel, you lose the, heart rate, uh, you lose the GPS signal, yeah. but the heart rate stays. <laughs> so, so what Garmin have done, and they describe this in their white paper, is that they've worked out algorithms that cut out sections of bad data.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what's left is good data. And then they use that good data to extrapolate what the heart rate oxygen relationship looks like because they know the oxygen speed relationship and they know the heart rate speed relationship. So they just basically infer the missing point. So so that's that's what they basically. So the first assumption is oxygen running speed. The second assumption is how they cut out sections, which I think they probably do pretty well. They've got Mm -hmm. so much data, they've worked that out. And then the final assumption is, what's max heart rate? That's, that's the one that changes the accuracy of their method the most, because they have to assume that your max heart rate is 220 minus your age. That's the formula or that I believe they, they would. have they not
2: been measured the, the highest heart rate that you have they, done in the last they, six months? They could do that, and they yeah. do
1: default. I know my polar does that. Yeah. So my age-predicted heart rate max is now, well, it's an easy sum now, it's 180. <laughs> I can regularly get to 200. Yes. So my polar has replaced my max heart rate of 180 with 200. But you're one of those you're one of those outliers which has a relatively so high heart rate. So it's easy to replace it in right. that direction. It's right. not easy to replace it the other way. Yeah. Because how would by definition let's say my max heart rate was 170 Which is
2: assume, mine. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you wouldn't assume that I was running at max unless you told the so if, if Garmin wanted to improve this, they could actually ask you to do a session like that. But to, do it, to do a session where it gives you a de- max Designed to give you run. a measured max heart rate instead of relying on a, on a formula. But so I think that suggest- that becomes quite risky, right? Because now you're yeah. going to ask all these people who buy a Garmin. Now next thing you are the guy bleeding from his <laughs> eyes trying to run as fast as possible for 20 minutes. That's not fun for anyone. Yeah. So I think, they've, I think they've made a decision that they're going to stick with a max heart rate estimate. And the problem with a max heart rate estimation is that if your actual is higher than your max heart rate, then at any heart rate, you're actually at a lower percentage of max, and they're going to get a, the wrong oxygen estimate for right. you, and vice versa. So, so there's actually a curve where Garmin reckons that the error in their estimate is 5%. Right,
2: which is acceptable.
1: But, yeah, it's not too bad. But if your heart rate differs by, from, your actual heart rate max differs from the, the theoretical heart rate max by 10, 15%, that error goes to 9% right. in, in either direction. 7% yeah. in one and 9 in the other. So does that make sense? So, yeah. So, 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 so for Pete's question, his garment says 59.2, we can probably say plus or minus 5%. Right. If his heart rate max is more or less the same as his estimated heart rate max. So he would know that, Pete. You're listening to this. If, if your max heart rate that you know is more or less the same as what's age predicted, then that 59.2 is five percent, is within five percent of your true value. Yeah. If your max heart rate is higher or lower, then that error starts to get a little bit bigger, up to about nine, nine, ten percent.
2: And there are ways to do maximum heart rate tests. Lots of different things you can look up online if yeah. you do want to do that. And it's probably yeah. a pretty good thing to do once in a while just to see exactly where you're at. Mm. If you train as hard as you can, sometimes. Yeah, what you see is your max. If your max. Yeah. yeah, there are ways of doing it. Finding a yeah. 200 meter hill and doing 10 minutes of warm up and then gunning it for one. You know, all those little yeah. things. Yeah,
1: but over the course yeah. of three, four months of training, if you regularly yeah. put in big efforts, yeah. you will have seen a max heart rate on your watch. Yeah, by now I know what mine is. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you just got to be mindful and check yeah. it and be aware. In the absence of doing that, age minus your heart rate is probably what first beats. And Apple, I suspect they all use the same thing. And then it changes your error. But that's, that's the, So in summary then, there's three assumptions. One is that there's a relationship between oxygen and speed, which amazingly enough means that we all use more or less the same oxygen at a given slow oh, speed. that's incredible. Second is Garmin makes certain assumptions, not really assumptions, more like calculations, based on when you're standing still, soft sand, downhill, uphill, etc., that might introduce small errors, but probably trivial by comparison. Mm-hmm. And then the third estimate is maximum heart rate. And then all they do is they relate speed and oxygen and heart rates, and eventually work out at your max heart rate, this is your speed, therefore this is your oxygen, that's your VO2 max.
0: Huh. Yeah.
2: Well, I'm amazed at that because I thought when I saw this question, I thought, well, it, you know, that these, these sort of, I mean, I, I don't want to, slag of the technologies, but there's so often that it, it, these, these things are used because they have algorithms based on population sizes and numbers and that sort of thing. But it does sound like it's a, a reasonable estimate. So they, uh,
1: they do, by the way, some companies do also factor in a bunch of other metrics. So what you end up getting is like a regression equation, mm-hmm. which includes and I've told you what I think are the most powerful ones, which is speed and heart rate. Some of the others do use your height, your weight. Sometimes you have to put in there your training history. Um, yeah. So, so they do. They do try and refine it a little bit like yeah. that. But I suspect that that's pennies compared to dollars, and the dollars are the are the heart tracks and the and the speed.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think Pete, if you're somebody who's really keen to find out exactly what your real numbers are, I mean, there are you can do a VO2 test uh, wherever you are in the world. There are lots of places that do these sort of things. So. Mm. Get hold of your local coach and or sports science institute or wherever you are, and you'll probably be able to arrange one if you're if you really want to know where it is. Um, yep. So yeah. yeah. Good question. Anyway, that's all from us uh, for this episode. We'll be obviously focusing on some other questions a bit later on in February. We've got some really exciting interviews coming up in the next couple of weeks, and we will share them with you on our social media feed, which is SportsSciPod, and as we do them. But a big thank you again to all of our Patreon members who sent us questions, and a big thank you to Ross Tucker for being with us today, as usual. And uh, we look forward to the uh, next couple of weeks of some really cool exciting themes that we will be discussing but from us for now it's goodbye
1: thank you for listening to the science of sport podcast follow us on twitter at sports pod and on instagram at science of sport podcast